0: Is Max. My guest today is Dr. Oni Blockstock. She's the Assistant Commissioner of the Bureau of HIV of the New York City Health Department. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself.
1: So, thanks for having me on, uh, Max. I'm a primary care physician, an HIV specialist, worked as a researcher for about 10 years, uh, and now I uh, lead the Bureau of HIV in overseeing the city's response to the HIV epidemic.
0: Fantastic. Um, so, if you don't mind me asking, um, what made you switch from the research side of your career to now leading HIV responses in the city of New York?
1: So, I, you know, when i supposed to go back a little bit to, um, you know, wanting to become a physician, wanting to, like, impact the health of, of communities like my own. Um, and so, I always knew I wanted to do that. I always wanted to go to medical school. I was very much influenced by um, my mother who was raised herself by a single um, single mom along with her five siblings, um, did not have the amount of support that I had, but was able to really pursue her path and become a physician and worked in central Brooklyn for most of her career um, as a nephrologist. And so sort of had her as a role model and always wanted to pursue a similar path. When I started seeing patients, you know, as a, as a resident, derived a lot of joy from that experience, um, but also found that I had a lot of questions that actually I had and that my patients also had. Um, and so when I was doing an HIV fellowship at Harlem hospital, I I had questions for instance, around, you know, how does the role of trust in one's healthcare provider impact patients adherence to their HIV medications. Um, I was also interested in evaluating a dental clinic, um, rapid HIV testing program that Harlem Hospital had at the time because um, it actually seems that people are more likely, who may be at high risk for HIV, are more likely to see a dentist than a primary care physician. So Mm -hmm. I was sort of doing these projects and realized that I also needed to have sort of the sort of statistical methods skills um, and other skills to be able to ask these questions in a rigorous way. And so I went to the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, which is a health services research fellowship. So gained research skills there and then um, sort of launched into my career in research, which involved applying for NIH funding. National Institute of Health funding, CDC funding um, really to support work around how do we engage primarily um, Black and Latina, cisgender women and ultimately transgender women in HIV prevention and treatment. And I really enjoyed that work. It was really exciting to be able to um, be in an area where there wasn't a lot of work going on, but where work was really necessary, and being able to like generate generalizable knowledge that then could be used in terms of implementing programs. Um, but the pace of research is very slow. <laughs> a lot of patience is required, and you know, there's lots, lots of intensive like resources that are invested to recruit like a small number of people and then thinking about how long it takes to translate like research findings into actual clinical practice and policies. So just thinking about that whole like horizon, I think it's like 17 years, supposedly, um, on average. And so I realized that I really wanted to be part of something where I had a, a much larger impact and a large impact on communities. Mm-hmm. And so this opportunity to lead the Bureau of HIV um, came up and I felt like it was an opportunity I didn't want to to miss. And just to say, when I was doing my Health Services Research Fellowship, I actually shadowed Dr. Monica Sweeney, who was leading the Bureau of HIV at the time, and really thought she had a really exciting job. And so I had remembered my experience shadowing her, you know, wanting to be part of, like, um, you know, an enterprise where there was, like, really important stuff happening on a large scale level, and so decided to come to the health department.
0: Fantastic. Uh, and since you 've been at the health department you 've been working on large HIV prevention initiatives. Um, something that i' noticed you tweeted recently was about the sort of lesser access to HIV prevention medication for women, especially women who have vaginal sex. Can you tell me more a little bit about what that landscape looks like?
1: right, so in uh, New York City, when we look at some of our data around PrEP awareness and use among um, self-identified uh, women who are living in high HIV diagnosis, high poverty rate areas who tend, who are um, Black and Latina, um, we see that there are really low rates of awareness about PrEP um, as an HIV prevention strategy and even lower uh, rates of PrEP use. So just mm-hmm. so for your listeners, just everyone knows HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP Um, is a once a day pill that's safe and effective in reducing one's risk of HIV. So we see low rates of awareness, even lower rates of use, but then we also see when we look at women, both cis and trans women who are impacted by HIV, it's primarily black and Latino women. So um, here at the health department, Uh, We launched last year a campaign called Living Shore, which was a sexual health marketing campaign, uh, really promoting PrEP as a tool within the sexual health toolkit and raising awareness around PrEP uh, among um, both cis and trans women. Um, We also are um, currently involved in supporting a, um, it's called a detailing campaign, where we send out public health representatives to clinics to speak with providers about both pre exposure prophylaxis and post exposure prophylaxis, and we're specifically targeting women's health care providers. And so, you know, I think throughout the United States, it has been a challenge to increase awareness around PrEP and as well as PrEP use among women who are disproportionately impacted by HIV.
0: Mm-hmm. And when it comes to sort of like development of new drugs, especially within the realm of pre-exposure or prophylaxis, it appears—and I'm not an expert in this topic—but it appears that women are sort of like under enrolled or understudied for those purposes. So
1: for HIV drug trials in general, they do not include um, sort of large numbers of like people of like reproductive potential, um, because of concerns around. Like the harmful effects of the medications on the growing fetus, and so, but the issue that happens is that we then don't have data around safety of these medications in people of reproductive potential and in the fetus. So it's 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 sort of like a, a catch twenty um, two, and so what ends up happening, um, for instance. For instance, what happened with um, a medication called Dolutegravir, which is used for HIV treatment as well as post-exposure prophylaxis, is that in post-marketing studies, so once women, you know, this medication was out in the community, even though it hadn't been studied in, for instance, cisgender women of reproductive potential, they found that in these post-marketing studies that there appeared to be a slightly elevated risk of neural tube defects among women who who conceived while on this medication. And so what happens is because we don't really have data from, you know, from the clinical child of women, what ends up happening is like we find out some of this data you know, later on once it's the medications are out in the community. And just to say, just for your listeners, that um, this medication, there's been sort of further research done and it actually appears that even though there appears to be a slightly increased risk of neural tube defects, the actual risk is is very, very low and that the benefits to the, the, the patient's health of taking the medication seems to far outweigh the very small risk of birth defects to the growing fetus. So just to say that. You know, when we look at uh, HIV prevention or PrEP medications, for instance, we know that Truvada, the one medication that is currently, actually now that's the first medication, I should say, that was currently approved um, for PrEP, that that medication was studied in many different populations, including uh, cisgender women and transgender women. The second uh, medication that's now approved for prop, which is goes by the name Discovy, uh, was only studied in cisgender men who have sex with men, and a very t- small number of trans women. Um, and it was not has not been studied in people with vaginas, including cisgender women and or trans men who may have vaginas or um, other folks with vaginas. So we don't know um, you know the the efficacy of this this now second available pill for PrEP in these populations. And so that is definitely a a, a disappointment because we can really only offer now one medication to these groups while there are now two medications and the second being marketed as as a safer alternative for folks who might benefit from PrEP.
0: Right. Now, when we think about, you know, the sort of like... um, Matters of health disparities, we, we know already, right, you mentioned earlier that Black and Latino women are at higher risk of uh, contracting HIV, especially if they're living in low-income areas. And so I'm wondering how the lack of access to PrEP sort of like worsens other matters related to like chronic health in these communities, especially for these women.
1: I think... Um the lack of, sort of access to PrEP and lack of awareness and use of PrEP as really symptomatic of right larger um, issues in terms of uh, lack of access to overall quality health care and to comprehensive sexual health services. So, um, you know, when we have communities that are unable because of sort of larger structural barriers to take advantage of these new HIV prevention technologies, that then worsens the inequities that we see in, for instance, new rates of HIV diagnoses. So the same factors such as you know, poverty, um, racism, even issues around mass incarceration where you have large numbers of eligible partners being taken out of the population so that then women may be in situations where they're, they're they have a sexual partner who also has other sexual partners. So we call that concurrency those factors can then drive the spread of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. Um, So, yeah, so I think we just see some of the same factors that are leading to higher rates of HIV diagnosis being the same factors that, like, are limiting access to prevention technologies.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned having potentially sexual partners who may also have HIV, and that makes me think of... Sort of how social networks can be tapped into um, to address either a spread of disease or promotion of healthy behaviors, and I'm wondering uh, uh, what has what have you found that's worked so far in your in you know in your office or in general in New York City?
1: I think particularly for women, um, we know that like learning about different like technology, you know, whether it's sexual health or overall health or related to HIV, it's really helpful when people learn about those things from their peers. And so I think the challenge is, is that we don't have a lot of women talking about being on PrEP. Mm-hmm. So we don't, so people aren't seeing other people who look like them um, taking the medication. And so I think that can also hinder our progress because a lot of women think that PrEP is only for cisgender men who have sex with men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it is it is incredible. We know that you know in in communities where um, you know MSM are using these medications um, to prevent HIV, people are learning about um, these medications from from each other. and if people are you know probably from more affluent communities, they are learning also from their providers. So we want to make sure that you know we are supporting dialogue around prep. So for instance, we support um, a n- number of agencies in um, connecting patients with PrEP and, and in holding like events. So for instance, some of, we have this, like, a sip in, like a SIP in chat type of um, event around PrEP for Women that one of the organizations that we support held. And so women can really come together and learn from each other about PrEP and what's involved in taking it. They can have their questions answered. So networks are really important in terms of like diffusing information and, you know, and addressing potential counter narratives about medications and things of that nature.
0: You just made me think related to how people hear about you know new medications or technologies from their peers. Something came up recently in the media was Frank Ocean, whose music I love, announced that he's having or hosting a party called PrEP. And it seemed, I mean, from afar, as just looking at it from on social media, that it would be potentially sort of in favor of raising awareness for PrEP, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, you know, I just say when I first heard about it, I was like super excited that a young black man was, was talking about PrEP and creating an event to like increase interest in PrEP, because I think someone of his stature and standing is gonna be able to reach folks that, you know, maybe at the public health department, we may not be able to, um, but he is a much more compelling voice. I did, you know, I did, so I actually ended up posting on Twitter about it. I was like, oh, this is a really cool idea. But then also got like the pushback from folks who have been, you know, advocates and activists around um, HIV, for the, you know, since the beginning of the epidemic, who felt that um, it was trying to erase the, the history of HIV and how HIV itself impacted the club scene and how it was because of you know, the the, the suffering and um, the struggle that people went through, that that type of club scene emerged. And so by erasing it um, was really ignoring an important part of our, our history. And so I also appreciate that as well. And the fact that it was an exclusive party. Also, I think, you know, we want to like, make sure that we are including, you know, folks who are the most vulnerable. So I think you know there were things about it that were problematic, but I do think it's, it really, it's really important and very impactful for uh, someone like a Frank Ocean to be talking about Prep. Um, I I heard anecdotally from a colleague that after the announcement of the Prep Plus party that Frank Ocean was having, that there were like several young black men like reached out to their organization to find out more about Prep. So I think it, oh, it wow. can have a really positive impact.
0: Yeah, maybe he should have like a concert, a free concert series called Prep. Like that would seem more inclusive. yeah and also
1: wider yeah. yes, exactly.
0: populations. So I want to ask you, in your role, what have you found to be sort of like barriers to reaching your target populations when it comes to HIV prevention? And whether you've seen any differences between sort of like uh, you know, targeting uh, cisgender men versus targeting women? with these initiatives i know you already mentioned that the, the like social network aspect significantly contributes to people accessing or being aware of the medications
1: we've been really fortunate um, in new york city because we have ending, ending the epidemic funding that our city council um supports so we have funding for that and then also we have in you know, our federal um funders as well um and you may know there's like a Federal plan to end the HIV epidemic, so we're looking to receive new resources from that. But all that to say is that this allows us to really, you know, tailor our work to different um, groups that are disproportionately impacted by HIV. So, for instance, you know, I mentioned we had the Living Shore uh, social marketing campaign to raise awareness around about prep among self-identified women. Um, You know, we were also able to do. You know, a parallel social marketing campaign focused, for instance, on Latino New Yorkers, and then a a second installment focused specifically on Latino MSM, men who have sex with men um, to promote HIV testing, PrEP and treatment. And so just through through our social marketing and through our programmatic work, we're able to Um, really, you know, tailor the work we're doing to really ensure that it's like culturally sensitive, linguistically sensitive um, to address what may be sort of unique, but also shared needs of different um, communities. Um, And so for instance, you know, and so the strategy may be different. So for instance, we do um, a sexual health survey every year or twice a year where we recruit um, men who have sex with men online. To sort of ask them questions around HIV prevention and treatment. And so we can use like an online approach. We also use online approach for our, um, online home testing giveaway where we advertise on Grindr and other dating apps and people can get a code where they can get a HIV self test sent to their home because they need People may not feel comfortable going to a healthcare setting or mm-hmm. a community-based organization to get testing so like you know we're targeting men who sex with men we may use more online platforms and dating platforms but if we're going to target um, women we're you know online may not make the most sense and so we may use other approaches so we've been able to tailor our approaches based on who we're trying to reach and, and that's really important to us to be able to address the unique you know issues or needs that different communities are facing with respect to HIV.
0: Mm-hmm. Another thing that just popped in my mind about sort of targeting is how does it work for like your potentially I don't know teenage population who may technically who are like potentially already engaging um, in sexual intercourse but may be at risk, um, but at the same time they're teenagers so they're not adults. Um,
1: yes, yeah. right. So. So PrEP is uh, approved for for teenagers Mm -hmm. um, over a certain weight, over 35 kilograms, and we support uh, four different um, clinics, communities, organizations in providing uh, PrEP for adolescents. And so our PrEP for adolescents program is not just about like linking young people to PrEP, but also addressing other structural barriers that have increased their risk for PrEP. So we also provide you know, linkage to mental health and substance use services. We provide food, um, you know, basic housing needs, things of that nature are also wrapped in to our PrEP for Adolescence program because we realize, you know, also for young people, you know, HIV may be, not be at the forefront of their minds and they have other more pressing concerns. Um, and that these same, these same concerns are the things that may put young people at risk. So we make sure that our programs are addressing you know the social and contextual issues in addition to helping to link and navigate young people to prep.
0: Yeah, that's so important. So I do research on addiction and something that often comes up is this sort of like, you know, parallel between I, you know, drug use and risk of HIV and like, you know, hepatitis and I'm wondering whether in the HIV prevention work that you're doing in New York City, what that looks like in the sort of with the Opioid epidemic in the background, basically, or in the foreground, really.
1: Some of the work that we're doing is focused on crystal meth because that has been disproportionately impacting men who have sex with men and trans women in in New York City, and particularly black and brown MSM and trans women. So we have a program called a recharge program where we work with um, several community based organizations to provide really like low threshold harm reduction type services for both HIV positive and HIV negative folks who are using crystal crystal meth. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been a really important and exciting initiative that we're working on. We also, with our contracted agencies, so the agencies that we support with federal and city funds, we also work with some of them to implement SBIRT. So like brief, brief interventions around um, substance use and then getting folks linked to the care that they need. So we know that like like substance use is like a major um, you know, concern, a major issue, and so we are, to the extent that we can, we're working to integrate that into the services that we provide. But a lot of it is really limited to, um, with our contact agencies helping to support folks in referring patients, Um, or specifically with respect to crystal meth, we are actually supporting like medical and social services to help folks who are um, using crystal meth.
0: Yes, I've been reading a little bit about that or also coming across tweets regarding like the newer sort of like epidemic of crystal meth. So I'm really excited about the work that you're doing in terms of um, public health in New York City. And I'm curious what advice you may have for Um, you know, medical students or trainees in general who are interested both in research, but also in the sort of like, you know, effective public health uh, initiatives that would, you know, like you said, that would primarily impact the communities where we come from. Yeah,
1: I think looking for um, like opportunities to collaborate or support projects that the public health department is doing. So we have a number of internship programs, through um, one of the bureaus in our agency that helps to place interns uh, with uh, different bureaus based on what their interests are. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have found um, you know trainees that way who've helped to work with us on projects. And so they've had a chance to learn um, what working in public health is like. Um, And then also, you know, we have folks just reach out to us and say what their interests are. Um, People should also know there's like a preventive medicine residency Mm -hmm. that um, is available and our New York City Department of Health um, supports preventive medicine residents um, through this residency too. And so in that uh, program, there's a great deal of exposure um, to public health as well. So I think there are a number of different avenues that can lead trainees um, to a public health department.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciated learning from the work that you're doing um, with the health department.
1: Thanks, Max. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work and my trajectory. And um, thank you so much for this.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.